Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with Brother Macaroo and Brother Amos. I am Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell A. Swilly. So much to do, so little time. What comes to mind immediately is the co-optation. The speed of the co-optation is what I am always found fascinating. Jay-Z corroborating with the NFL in the wake of the Colin Kaepernick situation. There's been various attempts to justify, spin, sanction this co-optation. All have been denied by Colin Kaepernick's girlfriend who insists that Colin has not had any conversation with Jay-Z. Jay-Z has postured himself as a social reformer, but yet we find duplicity in that many of the issues that Colin Kaepernick brought to the forefront have not been addressed. He currently remains blackballed and uh, Jay-Z has obviously made a deal with the NFL uh, much to his personal aggrandizement to the negation of these issues that were highlighted still going unaddressed. Suffice it to say that um, no instrument of power is probably as effective as taking a man to the mountaintop and showing him the kingdom below. And I'm also reminded of a statement put forth by Dr. King when Dr. King intoned that there will always be freeloaders and profiteers. The question is whether the characteristics of decency, honesty, and integrity can be found in the dominant masses or a critical mass of progressive thinkers. Gentlemen, this is the African Liberation Media. Take it wherever you want to take it. Yeah, Gullah Jack, in today's times, we're living in a state of hypocrisy on an everyday level, on all fronts. Now, many of us heard about the Jay-Z deal with the NFL. And for those of you who have known the history of Jay-Z and how he grew in the entertainment industry, in his earlier parts of his career, we saw the situation that happened between him and Dame Dash. We know that these two brothers were once a team and Dame Dash was very critical of the Jews for what we call being culture vultures and trying to exploit and capitalize off of the talent and the culture of hip hop in which they have no talent or, or no cultural role in that arena, yet they make all of the money. So Jay-Z separated himself from Dame Dash at the request of the Jews or the small hats. And in doing this, Dame Dash was essentially pretty much blackballed 
out of the industry. And Jay-Z went on to become a very rich and successful hip-hop artist and entertainer. So we know that not only Jay-Z's actions, but even if you listen to his lyrics, he knows when to sell out. In one of his songs, Jay-Z was famously known for saying that ever since he did Five Mil, he has been rapping like Common Sense. <laughs> Which was not only a jab at Common, who was at the time a quote-unquote conscious hip-hop artist, but he was basically saying that I know that I could rap conscious, but I'm going to rap degeneracy because that's what's going to pay me. Mm. Big pimping. <laughs> One of the things that you can do is you can never trust a hustler. Now, Jay-Z, um, as successful as, as, as he has been, he made a statement a couple of years ago when he was, he was asked by the NFL to perform at the halftime show. He said that he would not perform at the halftime show because of the situation with Colin Kaepernick. But now today, we fast forward, 2019, recently Jay-Z has agreed to a deal uh, with the NFL where he's going to play the role of a social activist or helping the NFL um, with their social activism in the community and also giving them suggestions on other things as far as halftime shows, et cetera. So he's making a lot of money off of this deal. And one of the things that he said when this deal was announced was that the time for kneeling is over. Hmm. Now, Jay-Z didn't consult with Colin Kaepernick or he didn't consult with Eric Reed, or he didn't consult with, to my knowledge, any other NFL players that who had actually been kneeling in protest to the police brutality, to the situations of oppression that have happened, that have, that have happened and continuing to, to happen all over the country. He didn't consult with them. He pretty much superseded them in their uh, battle against the NFL um, and sold his, what I would say, not sold his soul, but he pretty much sold his status as a tool for the NFL to use to try to pacify black people and calm Africans down into continuing to watch and participate uh, in this particular sport. And the reason why uh, this is very detrimental, because when you look throughout our history, there's always been two sides of the coin. Okay, you've always had one side where African people who were relentless and who were unapologetic and who were willing to do whatever it would take to achieve a goal. Sometimes that goal was liberation. Sometimes that goal was simply fighting against lynching. Sometimes that goal was fighting for black people to have the right to vote. But you've always also had the Negro on the other side of the coin who's willing to side with the Caucasian, side with the European, and helping them to soften the blow, or as Malcolm would say, suffer peacefully. For African people to continue to suffer, but peacefully. And they've 
been almost like a blockage or a roadblock in most cases to black people achieving liberation. Sometimes we call these people the boule. Now, Jay-Z's not a boule member, but what he did was a direct action or reflection of what the typical boule person throughout history would do. They would act as the buffer between whites and the black race. And it's a way to protect whites from the black onslaught or African people for fighting for liberation. <laughs> so not only did this happen in the entertainment world, um, one of the things that you know weighs heavily on me constantly is when I look out here and I see many of our brothers and sisters who are in the quote unquote conscious community who are learning information, who are learning knowledge and who are learning information about some of our ancestors. One of the things that we have to be very weary of is we have to be very weary of trying to put everybody in the same category as far as the ancestral realm. As we're talking about ancestors who have lived and when they lived, they did certain things on this planet. Some things they agreed with, some things they disagreed with. And some ancestors that we have were enemies while they were alive and never were friends. So one of the things that we cannot do is we cannot try to make them friends now in the quote unquote spiritual realm. I often see this a lot when we try to rationalize a lot of the negative things about some of the things that people who I would call race traders did while they were living and we take a smidget of what they did that seemed positive and try to make that supersede the negative that they did. I'll give you an example. If we look at Mobutu, we can say that Mobutu was a race trader because of his alliance with the United States in helping to assassinate Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. Now, if someone today were to take someone like Mobutu and try to prop him up and say that he was a great ancestor, that would be, to me, a treasonous act because we have evidence of the detrimental actions that he did while he was here. The same way when we look at somebody like James Baldwin. Now, many people in today's times, and some people don't really understand um, the detriment behind what James Baldwin did because, you know, a lot of his clips are on YouTube and a lot of his plays and a lot of his books are famously known. But <clears throat> James Baldwin also committed a treasonous act when he was dating a white male. <laughs> and, and this is another thing that I have a problem with too, is I have a problem with people that talk black, but you sleep white. Not only sleep mm. with a white person, not a white woman, but a white man. Mm, mm, mm. So here you have this, this guy who was, at the time, quote unquote, articulating the black issues in America, but yet he's going to bed at night with a white man. 
and I don't want to get too vulgar or I want to get too explicit on the show because I know we have a lot of listeners who may be young, but you can picture what he was doing with this white man in his bedroom. And this is James Baldwin who at the time when he was living with this white male called uh, William Styron, that's what, that, that was the white man's name. William Styron wanted to write a book about one of our greatest ancestors, Nat Turner. And it was William Styron who went to his lover, Jimmy Baldwin, and talked to him about writing this book. He told James Baldwin that he wanted to portray Nat Turner not only as someone who had feelings or who was interested in white women, but who also could possibly have been a homosexual. Now, we know that Nat Turner represents, when you talk about male masculinity, you talk about real freedom fighters who were relentless, who had no fear and went out and fought against white people, left the plantation, had no problems, killing multiple white people, doing whatever it takes to be free. This is one of the black men that to this day, his name still strikes fear in the minds and hearts of Europeans. When we talk about the freeing of black people in America, if it wasn't for what happened in 1831, we may not have been free in 1865. Just like if it wasn't for what happened in 1801, the slave trade may not have been abolished, or what we call the Maafa, but what the Europeans called the transatlantic slave trade, might not have been abolished. They saw what happened and it made them go back and recalibrate what they had to do. So this is what Nat Turner represents. And it was Jimmy Baldwin who encouraged William Styron to not only write the novel, but to portray Nat Turner exactly the way that he wanted to portray him. Now, I don't want to take too long on this topic. You can go back and if you do the research yourself, you can see the history behind this treasonous act that James Baldwin committed. And when we as black people know this history, there's no way that we can lift up somebody like James Baldwin and say that his name should be mentioned in any realm with any of the ancestors that we classify as Africans who fought for our liberation. Not saying that everybody was perfect, but when you commit a treasonous act, it's the difference between having imperfections and committing treason. When you commit treason, your name should be erased from the history books. If we go back and look at what our ancestors did. And see, when I look at history, I look at the times when we had power. I look at what worked. When you go back and look at the hall of the, uh, of the ancestors, go back to ancient Kemet. And you look on the wall and you will see that Seti specifically erased Akhenaten's name from the king's list. He didn't waste time worrying about what little smidgen of good things that Akhenaten did during his time as being a king because he was treasonous and because he committed treason against the Amun priesthood. He erased his name from the record books. And he also he erased his son's name, King Tutankhamun's name from the record books. Because what they did 
put Kimmy at a state where it was weakened from a power standpoint because of the treasonous acts that they were committing. So what this teaches us is that we don't have to try to lift up, propped up, or, 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 or unify people from our past if we don't agree with the treasonous acts that they committed. It's important for us to understand that when we see people doing this, we have to call them out on it. And we have to teach them why it's important for us to classify certain people as race traitors and certain people as race warriors and, and, and freedom fighters who really dedicated their lives to African people. Bro, I wish you would express that, uh, those things that served as a catalyst for you, uh, expressing your views on what constitutes traitorous behavior. What was it that you experienced? Uh, if I saw a, a lot of people, you know, doing libations to uh, James Baldwin uh, and specifically trying to put Baldwin and Malcolm in the same category. Trying to put Baldwin and Dr. Khaled Abdul Muhammad in the same category. Trying to put Baldwin and Dr. Ben in the same category. Trying to put Baldwin in the same category with the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey. And when I saw it, specifically the person that I saw it from, mm. I was shocked the fact that it was being done, but it was being done by somebody who really should know why it's important not to do that. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's really what, what triggered it for me, along with a few other things, you know, just hypocrisy and, you know, and, and aligning yourself with the side that really makes me believe that um, you might have been bought out mm. or you might have sold out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we, like I said, we look at the Jay-Z's and we look at people like that. I mean, we got the same thing happening right here in our own community, if you want to call it a community. But you have right here you have examples where we say one thing and then we live and do another. And that's exactly, to me, who Jimmy Baldwin was. He said one thing in an interview, but then he lived and did another. You know, that's, that's why we, we always say that, you know, there is a massive struggle for clarity versus confusion. And this is one reason why I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in 99% uh, of these entertainers or these uh, YouTube celebrity scholars, pseudo scholars, um, because a lot of them are quite frankly, uh, the personification of confusion. And our problem is we don't have any standards. We used to have standards for mm -hmm. what constituted leadership. You know, I spoke at the Second Congress of African Peoples. Now, who was I to be on a platform with people like C.R.L.R. James, for example, just 
one of the persons who spoke there, Amiri Baraka. I mean, who, you know, who was I to be on a program with uh, such distinguished people as that? Why was I on the program? I represented an organization. I was speaking on behalf of the students at Malcolm X Liberation University. And you you can pull the program right now. <laughs> you know, if if, uh, if you can find the document, you can find the program from the Second Congress of African Peoples, which was held in uh, San Diego in uh, 1972. And you'll see the name Fess Bradley, right? <laughs> That's what they were calling me then, Professor uh, and, uh, but that, that was the standard. That was the standard. You, if, if you were part of an organization that was engaged in the struggle for the liberation and empowerment of African people, or if you had a long record of involvement, like a uh, CLR James, you know, who was the keynote speaker for that conference, then you got a platform. Other than that, I, I would say probably 90% of these people on YouTube couldn't even uh, give a speech to uh, Junebug Jones, you know, drinking uh, Thunderbird. What's the word Thunderbird? What's the price? 30 twice, you know, on the corner of Batesville Road and LaSalle Street. Or where we used to hang out on the corner of Chestnut and Fair, you know, right in the heart of the AU Center, sharing sharing a libation with uh, the quote-unquote block boys. But uh, th this, is, this is where we are. This is where we are. And... So you get a guy like Jay-Z, you know, who comes up, uh, you know, comes comes out of, uh, you know, he says the drug business or whatever in Brooklyn. And he he makes, you know, a, a name for himself as a powerful rapper. Uh, and but a lot of but, you know, a lot of his lyrics all along the way. I mean, if you go back and read the lyrics from the from the song Big Pimping. I mean, this is nothing but the psychodynamics of black self-annihilation. That's all, that's all it is. And a lot of these guys, a lot of these uh, entertainers want to deny, you know, it's really hypocritical, and they think people are just naive and gullible. Well, what, what we're saying doesn't influence anybody. And at the same time, you see them with gold chains, gold teeth, and so... Where did that influence come from? I mean, starting with Edward Bernays, the uh, nephew of Sigmund Freud, the capitalist class of America recognized the power of being able to influence people's minds to create people to make purchases beyond needs. Okay, that, that was the, if you go back and read Propaganda by Edward Bernays, that's what they had to do in order in order to make capitalism expand beyond just sat just making um, appliances and cars and things. They had they had to make people believe that they that they had to have things that they really didn't need. Amos Wilson calls it the production of desire. OK, it's the same thing. So these these words that have been that have been constantly repeated by these entertainers have clearly contributed to, you know, one of the most um, I'd say over the past 50 years that we start ranking devastating um, uh, events, devastating occurrences, devastating phenomena. Certainly black on black violence has been devastating and continues to be.
And you can't you can't disconnect the images that, that, that and the words, the images that came out of black enslavement television and the words in these songs. I mean, you know, just a few years ago, uh, years ago, this guy was saying, I got 99 problems, but a B ain't one. You got a daughter. Is she a B? So you get that. And then th these guys, you know, this guy said something that was very true. He said, I'm a businessman. He said, he said, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. And so, and so a lot of them began to like ride the wave of, uh, of black lives matter. Black Lives Matter, uh, the reactions to the killings, you know, that were taking place. People were actually reacting before these uh, ladies came up with the term. You know, they were reacted to Oscar Grant. People reacted, reacted to uh, Eleanor Bumpers. I mean, there's been a lot of react. We reacted here in Charlotte to Wendy Gale Thompson, James Willie Cooper and Carolyn Sue Bettiger in the 1990s. We didn't never use the word Black Lives Matter, but. You know, that's what we engaged in protests. And so a lot of them like began to ride the wave. And so as a result of riding the wave, um, you know, Jay-Z produces a documentary on Trayvon Martin. He produces a very, very powerful documentary on Khalif Browder. So, you know, he can stick you know, two feathers in his cap for doing that. And the, the, the wave created by Kaepernick had a lot of popularity because here's a man that's not even playing in the NFL and his jersey is number one in sales. That's a wave. Now, granted, it's making a lot of money for uh, the Nike company and it's also making money for Kaepernick because he, he didn't have a job. But he was still under contract with Nike. So Jay-Z made all of these, you know, statements about that. But he was just riding away. You see, these people are not grounded in any type of ethics. That's why you that's why you, you really can't put a lot of stock in, in the, what they're saying. So. So when Jay-Z was sitting up there with Roger Goodell this week and trying to rationalize saying, you know, well, why was why was calling protests and he was protesting so we would have a seat at the table so we would be able to influence, uh, you know, what's, what's going on with the NFL in terms in, ter in terms of social action and the time for kneeling is over as if he ever kneeled. And Colin Kaepernick wasn't protesting about what was happening in the NFL. He was protesting about what was happening in the United States. In the United States, right? He was he was protesting about the about the uh, uh, state sponsored killings, particularly of you know unarmed African Americans like you know Michael Brown Jr., Tamir Rice, and others. So, so you know er Eric Reed, Eric Reed, who certainly is a strong brother in the NFL, no compromise. He picked up on it immediately and, call, and called it out. Now, just a few days before that, Kenny Steels, who's probably next, Kenny Steels and Eric Reed, the two most conscious brothers in the NFL, I would say, now that Marshawn Lynch is retired. 
I don't know, was Michael Bennett still playing or did he retire? But anyway, um, Kenny Stills, Kenny Stills did something that that you this man is being paid is being paid seven point nine million dollars by the Miami Dolphins this year. The owner of the Miami Dolphins, uh, what is his name? Stephen Ross is having a $250 a plate fundraiser for Donald Trump. But at the same time, Stephen Ross has a nonprofit set up that's supposed to be geared towards bringing about some type of equality. And Kenny Stills, recognizing the hypocrisy, called out the man that's paying him $7.9 million. Who does that? This man can cut you in a heartbeat, and these NFL contracts are not guaranteed. You know, you, you got your bonus money or whatever. But, you know, Kenny Steele's, I mean, so he reckoned, he, he, he said this is hypocritical. You can't have it both ways. And so he called it out. So that's what Eric Reed recognized that was going on. And Kaepernick didn't really come out and make a strong statement against Jay-Z. But 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 one thing people need to understand about about this and um, uh, and I think it was uh, I'm pretty sure it was Brother Mariffa that pointed this out. Rock Nation is owned by white capitalists. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't know it until I, till I you know until he published that information. Rock Nation and, you know, and then when, then I did the research to validate it because, you know, we always have to validate it. Not that I didn't, you know, I know the brother wouldn't just publish something that, that if he hadn't already done the research. But I just that's just my habit. I always do that with anything that anybody says. So Rock Nation, Jay-Z formed Rock Nation uh, after his, I guess, after his split with Dash. He sold Rock Nation to Live Nation Entertainment. So when you look at live, when you look at the um, at the uh, the companies at the, at the company Live Nation Entertainment, you will see its subsidiaries. Rock Nation is a subsidiary of Live Nation Entertainment, and Live Nation Entertainment is owned thirty two percent by a company called Lib uh, Liberty Media, which is owned by a white man named John C. Malone. So I got to give Brother Mariffa props for pointing that out. So what I'm saying, I'm saying all of that to say that at the end of the day, no matter the Khalif Browder, we thank you, Jay-Z, Trayvon Martin, we thank you. But at the end of the day, Jay-Z is marching to the capitalist beat. And because of the protest, they a lot of these entertainers jumped on and they kind of rode that wave, Right? And it was like James Brown. James Brown cut his hair and wearing an afro. Five years later, he was back to having his hair processed. <laughs> okay, so I'm just saying that we 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 need when when we need to judge people by standards. They have to be grounded in ethics, and that's why someone can you know. <laughs> go to the grave of Malcolm and pour libation and at the same time, you know, want, want to compare, you know, someone like Baldwin and Malcolm, which there's no comparison. Baldwin was a writer. Malcolm was an organizer. Malcolm ha had one interest only, 
with which he gave his life for. That was the liberation and empowerment of African people. His mind wasn't between this, that, and that, and the other. Or they can praise Baldwin and then turn around and praise Nat Turner. And, and yeah, and go and go to that's, Na- it, that's hypocrisy. And go to and go and go and go to Nat Turner's, you know, the celebration of Nat Turner, you know, which takes place every year in uh, you know, in the in the uh, Tidewater area of Virginia where you know, Nat was marching on the road to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I mean, th- these these are the kind of things. I mean, to me, this is the position, you know, that 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 we find ourselves in, and it it just it, it's an indication, in my opinion, of how far we've fallen. How how far we've fallen from the um, the sixties and seventies, and you know, and, and uh, I, I was just watching uh, before I came over here. I was watching the uh, Eyes on the Prize segment uh, that uh, that deals with Muhammad Ali, and you know, I was I was I was just thinking that that when the the the, the young people who had been in the civil rights movement said. We know the history. We saw what happened during Reconstruction. These reforms ain't going to last if we ain't got no power. So that's why they started, made the call for black power, and then the, then the black liberation movement emerged out of that. Okay? So that was the track we were on, and the U.S. government says, we got to squash this. The same way they decided they had to squash the Garvey movement. They decided that, you know, that they had they had to move against the black liberation movement and, you know, and put all kinds of other things out there to distract young people away from that. And our consciousness has taken a serious fall. And, and, and it's not like we had, had reached any type of power, but they they were frightened by the potential that it represented. And so they, they have they have been constantly, you know, Jamil Elamine, H. Rap Brown, in his speech at the Free Huey rally in February of 1968, he and Bobby Wright said said two things. Bobby Wright wasn't there, but in Jamil's speech, he says, he says that our enemies, they don't want the old heads, they want the young minds. And then Bobby Wright said in the 1970s, there's only one battle left, the battle for the black mind. And that's where the struggle has been, really, since the 1970s. And critical to the success of that struggle. And they have been, they have been successful in capturing millions of black minds, not just in the United States, but in the Caribbean, uh, all over the African continent. Cape Town, weekend before last, had 47 murders. We think Chicago's bad. 47 murders in the weekend before that, that I think they had 45 or 46 and then 41. This is one weekend. So this is where this is this is where our struggle is. And these entertainers and these uh, pseudo scholars that, you know, uh, own uh, Facebook and and YouTube and whatnot. Uh, you know, they are they're all part of the process that that's that's. This presenting a very difficult challenge for us at this point in our history. Both of you brothers uh, brought up some relevant points. Uh, uh, 
I think our continuity was disrupted during the latter part of the 60s, 70s, um, and I'm speaking specifically to the policies of black capitalism, which staved off the demands for black power. Hmm. Yeah, this was Nixon, and then, you know, COINTELPRO, various programs being instituted, LEAH, the uh, Law Enforcement um, Administration Act. Uh, we know very little about this except the fact that if you had one or two blacks in any community, you qualify for LEAH money, Operation Chaos. Mm-hmm. We know very little about that. Uh, Brother Michael, you, wanna, you may want to speak to that issue. Uh, but uh, Operation Ghetto Informant. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and even to this day, this particular day, uh, everybody is everybody's enemy. It's subtle, but it's definitely a spirit that permeates, uh, you know, the African uh, colony, needless to say. You uh, wanted to comment on um, Brother Amos's observation of the relevance of Nat Turner. Uh, to my understanding, uh, the uh, insurgency organized by Nat Turner was so significant in disrupting the consciousness of the European, the so-called white man, that they actually considered a proposal to uh, free the slaves. Mm. Okay, much to the chagrin of the U.S. government, uh, there were several attempts, um, even prior to Lincoln and beyond Lincoln, to um, uh, take in strong consideration um, African, at least uh, Africans being released from that uh, shadow form of, of slavery. Virginians were very uh, dismayed over the fact that they could not quell the rebellion themselves and um, ultimately had to rely on the U.S. government. This uh, clearly uh, shattered the European perception perhaps for hundreds of years. Uh, those people who've gone to Southampton County, uh, current county seat being Cortland, Virginia, are often greeted, I understand, with a great deal of hostility when you request the records of Nat Turner. <laughs> you know, supposedly the um, shanties, for lack of a better term, the old dwellings um, remain stained with the blood mm. of the Europeans for many, many years. But, um, you know, the other point um, I wanted to make was um, a point well articulated by Brother Amos Wilson, which both of you brothers alluded to. Uh, Amos talks about um, identity. It's not only a psychological concept. We're quoting Wilson now. It is an economic concept as well because you buy to affirm who you think you are. And minus an African-centered identity, when you allow the European to impose an identity upon you and you buy to maintain that image, you maintain the European domination over you. And the critical question becomes, you know, how do we counter this? How do we counter this? Uh, I have to pay homage, you know, to Brother Baruti. Once again, the truth he talks is the truth that he conducts. You know, it's King raised the question, you know, what are we willing to sacrifice? And what price are we willing to pay in order to achieve 
liberation or a mm. modicum of human liberation. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to sacrifice? What price are you willing to pay? Wow. Mm. Yes, sir. Well, a um, couple of, uh, of events that uh, kind of struck me during the week. Um, it was a uh, seven-year-old child oh, killed, uh, killed in St. Louis. Uh, and we post this under, uh, you know, what we call the tyranny of stray bullets. This young man actually was in his backyard, which uh, there was an alleyway that, that ran up to parallel to his backyard. Some uh, people came through there running and shooting, shot this kid in the throat, seven years old. And his young sisters, his young sisters, not much older than him. His name was Xavier Yusanga. His father, perhaps a native of, uh, of the continent. Uh, his young sisters ran up to him, put their hand on his throat to try to stop the blood from coming out mm. and tried to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Now, here's the thing. He is the 11th child, 17 and younger, including one two-year-old and one three-year-old that have been killed in St. Louis since June. 11. One two-year-old, one three-year-old. And this, this picture, this one particular kid really got to me, and I had to post it on, uh, on uh, Eddie, Eddie Hill IV. I think he was 10 years old. And uh, his parents uh, put a collage of his pictures up. And there's a picture, I guess, when he's graduating maybe from uh, kindergarten or something, and he's dressed in African attire. And that just really got to me. Because I'm saying, you know, when, at what point, at what point, as Douglas said, the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. At what point does our endurance of this tyranny expire? Or does it ever expire? Do we just continue uh, to accept it without engaging in some kind of positive action? Because if black lives matter, all black lives matter. Not just, yeah, we, we understand the state-sponsored killings. That's a serious problem. Yes, sir. We understand that. This just week, Wendy Curl, the officer who killed Dan Queers Franklin here back here in uh, April, brother had 44 seconds to try to respond to conflicting instructions from the police. Put your hands up. Put the gun down. Put your, you know, 44 seconds. And, and 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 granted the brother the brother the brother was wrong. He went to his uh fiance's workplace and went off. You know, we got we gotta we gotta have better control of our emotions. Uh but you know, this un, 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 under under this uh system of white supremacy, we understand how it how it works on our emotions. But the manager had come out and calmed him down. And the uh, the police didn't even really take time to process all the information themselves. And as when the brother was trying to put the gun down, the officer shot and killed him. 
Now, according to the chief, they still conducted an internal. He said the chief said no laws were broken. But they conducted an internal investigation to see if uh, she followed department procedures. If this is department procedure, then, you know, just change the name uh, to uh, uh, to Murder, Inc. <laughs> right. <laughs> just like the mafia had Murder, Inc. under uh, Albert Anastasia. Right. Lepke Buckhalter. Murder, Inc. Um, so we got that. And then we have. You know, we've gone over 70 uh, homicides here in, in Charlotte now, the um, 203 in Philadelphia, over 200 in Baltimore, over 300 in Chicago. I mean, uh, you know, and, and and the thing of it is, is that uh, is that we know why we know fundamentally why. We know that the disintegration of the black family and the massive unemployment of black males, urban black males, coupled with the war on the black liberation movement, the mass introduction of drugs, the war on drugs, right? The, um, the proliferation of uh, negative or self-destructive images and lyrics through music, neo-colonial politics, all of this has contributed to the conditions that exist in our community. And of course, dr uh, drug prohibition, you know, when the bodies of white people were stacking up in the streets of Chicago and New York during the era of alcohol prohibition, mm -hmm. the U.S. government said, we can't allow this to continue to happen. So they removed the prohibition of alcohol. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? No difference whatsoever, brother. If you <laughs> create the conditions, if you create the social economic conditions, the behavior is predictable. And, you know, once again, Wilson spoke to this. You know, we're talking about uh, the glorification of violence um, during the era of prohibition, uh, alcohol becoming a scarce resource, which created a new industry called smuggling. <laughs> bootlegging. <and pe> <laughs> bootlegging, and people fought, struggled, and died using the latest in weapons technology. I mean, you and I both, brother, grew up watching uh, a series called The Untouchables, narrated by Walter Winchell. We saw the St. Valentine's Day Massacre that resulted um, because of this scarce resource Scarce resources in the black community, you know, whenever crack cocaine becomes the only growth industry in your community, well, then people will struggle and die losing, using whatever weapons they have available to them. And these are not the issues that Jay-Z is going to be addressing. He will yeah. not be addressing those issues because, because, because. You don't see, have the consciousness. Well, right? not only doesn't have the consciousness, uh, you, the in, the in, the NFL is 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 in bed with the capitalist class. They they're totally dependent upon the capitalist class. It was the capitalist class that decided to move these industrial and manufacturing jobs out of the urban communities. Okay, it, it, are they going to bring them back? Absolutely not. Is is you know that that's, that 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 is not going to happen. See, here's what one thing a lot of people don't realize. That, that first of all, let me just let me say this, that 
the highest murder rates right now per capita in history that have been recorded are still in Western Europe after the breakup of feudalism. And what happened after the breakup of feudalism? White people crowded into these cities, London, Liverpool, Amsterdam, Lisbon, Paris, et cetera, et cetera. And what you had in those cities, you had high rates of poverty, massive poverty, massive unemployment, and massive, massive amounts of crime and violence. Okay? And what actually pulled those cities out of that despair was the Industrial Revolution, which was based, which was fundamentally based on the textile industry, which was dependent on the, the cotton that was being picked by African, enslaved Africans in the United States. Uh, Walter Rodney points out in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, that James Watt it was one of several people who were competing to, to build the most functional steam engine. He was given money by people involved in the, in the uh, transatlantic enslavement of African people to do research and development. Walter Rodney documents this. Enslavers of African people, people are lords of London, the Barclays Bank, who are financing these inventors like Watt to do research and development are making their money off the enslavement of African people. And then, then it's the cotton that's being picked that allows the textile industry to grow in Europe. This is why France and England were both considering joining the Confederacy or at least recognizing it because the uh, naval blockade that the uh, United States had imposed on the Confederacy was preventing the shipment of the cotton that was being picked by Africans from going to Europe. This was causing unemployment in Europe. And the leaders of Europe were saying, they were saying, wow, we just came out of this mess. Where I think Amsterdam may have the, Amsterdam may have the highest per capita murder rate in history still today, despite all of the murders that are taking place. Now, Cape Town may pass that. I don't know. But, 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 but like you said, you create the conditions. The other thing is this. In the post-Civil War period, the Irish were killing one another right and left. You see it in the gangs of New York. Okay? They had, they had the highest murder rates in the United States. Okay. The Irish. The Irish were put to work in industries. The employment requires discipline. You can't stay up all night drinking and fighting and, and cutting people up with, with hatchets and axes. So the employment in the, in, in, in the industry, in, in, in the industry that had been, that was basically based on it, the growth of it was based on the enslavement of African people. Then the Italians in the first third of the, uh, of the 20th century, Ellis Island, 
Vito Corleone. Yes, sir. Who's obviously fictitious, but Lucky Luciano and Thomas Lucchese and and all Frank Costello and all these guys are real people. Mm -hmm. Okay? They had higher murder rates. And a lot of them, you know, what got, what, what, they ended prohibition, but the country was still in a depression. And they began to ramp up the war, the armaments industry, and that and that provided employment. When black people finally were able to get into uh, industry, in into manufacturing, okay. we, we were only in it from basically uh, say the mid nineteen forties, okay, until uh, the mid nineteen seventies, and then it started going away. Yeah, yeah. So, so are you are, are you going? How you how you, you are you going to force the capitalist class to bring these jobs back and put these people to work? No, you're not. First of all, they don't care. They all they all about profits. A lot of people say, "Well, the jobs are going away." A lot of those some automation has taken some some manufacturing jobs away. That's a fact. But a lot of these jobs are still being done in China, uh, all parts of Southeast Asia, India, uh, Korea, Mexico. So you know this is this is this is a it's an enormous problem, and you know if we could if we could spend our money more wisely, we could we could hire a, a lot of these young people. But the, on, the, on, the only way African people can solve this total problem is we have to have a global economy, which means that we have to control the land and resources primarily in Africa in order, in, in, in order to totally solve it. But anyway, we run, we're running short on time. Yeah, before we close out, I wanted to touch on a positive that I saw this week, or really uh, yesterday, uh, there was an article that came out. I first saw it on Face to Face Africa. But there is a uh, doctor in the Congo, or scientist in the Congo, who has um, done a clinical trial on Ebola, mm -hmm. Ebola virus. Right. Introduced two new drugs that have been found to treat Ebola and uh, at a much higher rate uh, with 94% people been able to survive after they've been infected. Mm -hmm. um, he's come out and said that, you know, Ebola is curable. Uh, of course, other scientists are saying that, you know, more research still needs to be done because there were some people that still did die. So um, at least they're now saying that Ebola is treatable. Um, but it's positive to see, even though we know that it's very fishy how the Ebola virus came about. Mm. Um, you know, the CDC owns a patent on a certain strain of the Ebola virus. Mm. Um, but to see an African come up with a solution to the problem or what appears to be a promising solution once more testing and more studying is done, um, this could potentially be or could potentially end up being a cure to the Ebola virus, which has devastated populations across West Africa and Central and East Africa. Mm-hmm. So um, just wanted to give a positive for the Dr. Jean-Jacques Moyembe, 
uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Yeah, that's that's good. And and the thing of it is, is that the what the the problem could be, even if if you know, hopefully that it is a cure. If it's not a cure, hopefully it it remediates the disease. But these pharmaceutical companies, if they get it. And they want to charge exorbitant fees like we have people dying right here in the United States because they can't afford insulin. Then, you know, it won't benefit the masses. And, you know, the question, you know, I mean, you know, African people could do that. We could do this ourselves. We could manufacture the drug ourselves. I'm sure we have the capacity to do that without giving it to, you know, one of these large, you know, chemical companies that are just, you know, just ripping people off. I mean, you're talking about just blood-sucking capitalists. Profit over people, brother, is a society on the verge of a spiritual death. Yet, as bleak as it seems, we're called to do the good insofar as we can determine what the good is to basically counter what Curtis Mayfield articulated as a possible reality, and that is, if there's a hell below, we gonna go in but, a rocket ship. But we gonna keep on pushing. We gonna keep on pushing. That's right. BB for Hodier is African Liberation Media. We can't stop now. Yes, BB for Hodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes, does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately, those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world. 